0: Good morning. My name is Adam Hoover. Uh, My wife, Laura, and I are team members here at Seabreeze, along with our three kids. My day job is that I'm an attorney here in Orange County, but I also serve as a growth group leader and on the advisory team here at Seabreeze. And this morning, we're continuing our series on the epic story. and we're getting close to the end. This is the next-to-last message in the series. And what we've been talking about for seven weeks now is this epic story that's woven through the pages of the Bible. Because the Bible isn't a collection of random folktales or spiritual musings. It's telling us a story, a true story, a story of how God is rescuing his people and revealing himself to the world. And this story plays out in the pages of the Bible through real events and real people in history. For me, one of the things I find most compelling about the Bible, and it keeps me coming back to it, is this story and how everything in this story is connected and keeps building on itself. No matter how much you study the Bible, it never stops rewarding you by revealing more and more of these connections, especially between the events in the Old Testament and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament. For example, earlier in this series, Elliot walked us through the story of Abraham, when he was asked by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. And for many people, both outside and inside the church, that's a difficult story because it sounds like God is asking Abraham to do something horrible and impossible. But what we learned is that every detail of how God directed those events was intended to paint a picture for us of what it would look like when God would sacrifice his own son. And just like God miraculously provided a substitute so that Isaac would be spared, Jesus stepped in as a substitute for us so that we would be spared. And Bevan walked us through the story of the Passover, how God rescued his people from four centuries of slavery in Egypt. And God instructed his people to sacrifice a lamb and then take the blood of that lamb to mark the doorposts of their houses. And when they did that, death passed over them and they were set free. But the passover isn't just a jewish folk story just like with abraham and isaac every detail of those events paints a picture for god's people in the future for us now a picture of how when we trust in christ's sacrifice when we're marked by christ's blood we're free from our spiritual death and our spiritual slavery and we also talked about god's promise to abraham to make a nation through him and that this nation would be god's chosen people And that promise made thousands of years ago points to what we're talking about this morning, the church. The church is a family and a home for God's people. And we look back in time at that promise made to Abraham thousands of years ago as our beginning. So this morning, we're going to focus on the church. What is the church? What does it mean to be a part of it? First, what are we talking about when we say the church? What does that mean? Well, we could mean a couple of different things. First, we can be talking about the local church. You could call this the lowercase c church. And this is what we have here at Seabreeze, a local group of like-minded Christ followers reaching out to our community, and together we're trying to serve God and help each other. And being a part of a local church is crucial for Christ followers because God didn't intend for us to be free agent Christians. The Christian faith is built around community. God designed us to thrive in a community, to serve and grow together as part of a local church like Seabreeze. And there is incredible spiritual power in the community of local church. And the reason that gathering and serving here as local church has that power is not because we're such a wonderful, holy group of people. It's because we're a part of something much bigger. We're a part of a larger body that reaches across the world and through eternity, And that's the second way we talk about the church, the universal church. You could call this the uppercase C church. And this is so much bigger than our local community here. When we talk about this universal church, we're talking about a global community, the family of God's people throughout the world and throughout time. The New Testament book of 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. It was written by Paul, a church planner who had helped launch this church. And listen to how Paul describes both meanings of the church. To the church of God, that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. What this verse shows us is that Seabreeze, or whatever local church you're a part of, does not stand alone. It's a part of something greater. We are together with everyone who believes and trusts in Jesus Christ in every place. So every Sunday, there are Christians in Europe worshiping in centuries-old stone cathedrals, and there's also Christians in countries where the Christian faith is illegal, and they're huddled in small house churches worshiping quietly. And our local churches may look a lot different, but we're all part of the same church. We are bonded to them as part of this universal family of God's people. And I find this incredibly encouraging and comforting because in any area of life, it's always helpful to know you're not alone, right? Whether it's work or marriage or kids or whatever, it's comforting to know there are people who share the same values and they're fighting the same battles. And that's even more true when it comes to our faith, who we say God is, that there are people throughout the world who trust in Jesus and they're standing with us. But to really understand the church, we have to go back to the beginning. How did a scraggly group of fishermen and tax collectors launch a faith that would spread across the world? They didn't have an army at their disposal. They were dead broke. Their leader had just been publicly executed. So how did they do it? To answer that, we go to the book of Acts, which is the fifth book in the New Testament, right after the four Gospels. Actually, the book of Acts was written by the same guy who wrote the book of Luke, basically as a sequel to the Gospels. And this is what Luke tells us about the early days of the church in Acts chapter one. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up in a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. So, let's stop for a minute and put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. For a few weeks following the resurrection of Jesus, they must have been ecstatic. They must have felt invincible. And for the passage we read, it looks like they had one agenda on their mind, that Jesus was finally going to bring an end to Rome's oppressive occupation of Israel. And the disciples were going to have a front row seat for the spectacle. But none of that happens. Instead, Jesus says, God's plan for Rome is above your pay grade. The job I have for you is to spread my message of God's rescue throughout the earth. And then he leaves. They must have felt disappointed, overwhelmed, completely unequipped for this new assignment. Things were just starting to look up, and now Jesus is gone, and we're supposed to carry on without him. At this point, two important things happen. The first happens immediately after Christ ascends to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Instead of giving up, instead of saying, This isn't what I signed up for, The church gathers as a community and prays. They pulled together as a body, as a church, and they prayed. They asked God to help them figure out the next steps. And then as a body, they started to work together. But there's still a problem. They have this impossible assignment from Jesus. They're supposed to take the good news about God rescuing people from sin and spread it to the ends of the earth, making disciples of all nations, how are they supposed to do that? These aren't educated people. They have zero resources. It would take years of planning and language study and fundraising to even begin a project like that. And that's when the second important thing happens, which we read about in Acts chapter 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? The second thing that happens is that God supernaturally equips the church. God sent his Spirit. Part of himself and permanently grafted it into the lives of these individual Christ followers and in the church. And in the passage we just read, the Spirit helps the disciples miraculously bridge language barriers and preach about Jesus to a crowd of thousands of people, even though they spoke a dozen different languages. The only reason the church lasted more than one generation is because of what we read in that passage. If God wasn't real, if he didn't really send his spirit to help the disciples, then these followers of Jesus would have just been another splinter sect of Judaism, and only a few people with PhDs in ancient history would have ever heard of them again. But we're here 2,000 years later because it did happen. God gave these fishermen and tax collectors and frail, broken, frightened people like us supernatural power, and he gave them part of himself. Remember how we said the Bible is full of these connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament? This is one of them. In this passage, God is fulfilling a promise he had made through the prophets in the Old Testament. For example, this is what God told Isaiah, one of the Old Testament prophets. The Redeemer will come to Jerusalem to buy back those in Israel who have turned from their sins. My spirit will not leave them, and neither will these words I have given you. That was written in 700 B.C., 700 years before Jesus was born, and Isaiah is writing about a Redeemer, coming to Jerusalem, saving people from sin, and promising the gift of God's Spirit to his people. And that promise was fulfilled in the first century when God launched the church. So when Jesus ascended to heaven, he didn't pass the baton. He didn't leave the job to a bunch of humans and say, okay, your turn. If that were the case, the church wouldn't have made it through the first day. Instead, God gave the church his spirit, part of himself, and gave them the boldness to come out of hiding and preach to thousands of people. And God continues to honor that promise. My spirit will not leave them. God gave us his spirit to be a bridge into what would otherwise be impossible and so that we would never be alone. If I believe in Jesus Christ, if I trust in him, then God's spirit will never leave me, and I can face whatever challenge he's put before me. This is a picture of my daughter, Sadie. Um, She's our third kid. She has an older sister, Shelby, an older brother, Barrett. And today is actually her first birthday. So if you see her, wish her happy birthday. And Sadie was a joy from the day she was born. But when Sadie was nine days old, she woke up, and we could tell she had a fever. And we couldn't tell exactly what it was because one of the other kids had eaten the thermometer, but we could tell it was enough (laughs) that we had to take her to the doctor. And if you've had small kids, you know the drill. This happens every few months. A kid wakes up sick. You've got to juggle everything, get them to the doctor. Um, So I take a half day off work so Laura can take Sadie to the doctor, and I can um, watch Shelby and Barrett and take them to Shelby's dance lesson. So the dance lesson is letting out, and I'm getting Shelby and Barrett loaded back in their car seats, and Laura calls. And she says, Sadie has a fever of 104, which is bad for an adult, right? Not to mention a nine-day-old. And Laura tells me they're admitting her to the hospital immediately. She's going home to get some clothes and then straight to the Kaiser Hospital up in Anaheim. And she's saying words like spinal tap and brain infection for my nine-day-old. And I'm still in shock over Sadie's health when the rest of it starts to dawn on me that I'm now basically a single dad of two crazy toddlers for... How long? At two days, four days, a week? I, I had no idea. What about my job? What about my wife, who's now living in the hospital with my daughter indefinitely? The more I thought about it, the more things seemed to unravel. And I think this might be a taste of what those early Christians experienced in those first days. Everything changed in a moment. Everything was going great. We had this new baby. Everything was wonderful. And now I'm alone alone unwittingly thrown into a situation that felt impossible. But God was gracious, and he met my needs in much the same way as he did for those early Christians. Honestly, before this, I was pretty clueless about being a dad. It just didn't come naturally. I wasn't that connected with my kids. And I could keep them from burning down the house for a few hours while I watched them, but that was pretty much it. But while Laura and Sadie were in the hospital, and I was taking care of Shelby and Barrett, God was rewiring my heart. God was giving me a vision of how to be a more intentional, engaged father and increasing my capacity to love and train my kids. So like those early Christians who must have felt completely overwhelmed, God equipped me to do something that felt impossible, and he gave me exactly what I needed for that assignment. And like those early Christians, the church rallied. Within a few hours, people had volunteered to bring us dinner, to come watch Shelby and Barrett while I visited Laura in the hospital. People from church were visiting Laura in the hospital and bringing her food. And it wasn't just the local church that rallied. It was the universal church. Sadie's name went out in prayer lists and prayer requests, and people I don't even know were praying for God to heal my daughter. That is the power of the church. So what does it mean to be a part of the church? Well, I want to talk about three things that God provides to people through the church, universal and local And these three things are answers to three deep needs and desires in the heart of every person. First, the church answers our desire for purpose, because we all want to know that we're not wasting our lives, that we're not just caught in an endless cycle of working and consuming until we die. Our souls are crying out to know that our lives have meaning, and nothing else in my life satisfies that desire, like living out my faith as part of the church. When God invites us to trust him and follow him, he's offering a life of purpose, a life that can we can be confident will have an impact that will outlive us. And because God has designed us to function and thrive as part of a community, I can't really conceive my purpose as an individual Christian apart from my purpose as part of the church. They're, they're inseparable. They're woven together. And the purpose we have as individual Christians and as members of the church is the same as it was for our first century forefathers. That 2,000-year-old assignment from Jesus hasn't been rescinded. The church is still the primary way that God has chosen to reveal himself to the world. So if you're a Christian, then you have a role to play in displaying God to the world. The book of Second Timothy is another book of the Bible written by Paul. And it was written to a young church leader who Paul had trained, sort of a Padawan. And this is what Paul tells Timothy about purpose. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. God's plan, God's purpose from before the beginning of time was to show people his grace through Jesus. And God allows us to join him in that plan to show grace to people. How? Well, you don't have to become a missionary. You don't have to get a degree from a seminary and join the staff of a church, you just live a holy life. Well, what does that mean? It it doesn't mean that you're, you're perfect or you're sinless. If that were even possible, we wouldn't need Jesus. What it means is that our lives are set apart for a purpose, that our lives are marked as different because of what we believe about Jesus. I first started attending church when I was a senior in high school at the Broadway Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas, and there was a man at this church named Steve. And Steve was a real honest to goodness cowboy. And Steve was in charge of the ushers, the people who walk up the aisle with the collection plates and the communion trays, like the offering buckets we have here at Seabreeze. Except the Broadway was not organized like we are here at Seabreeze. They didn't have sign ups and teams and reminder emails, they only had Steve. So every Sunday morning, Steve would roam the church volunteering people to be ushers. And if Steve learned that you could handle the trays without messing up, you'd become one of his favorites. Then you'd have to hide from him or he would pick you every week. In fact, even after I'd moved to California and gotten married, when I would go back and visit Broadway, Steve would still hunt me down to be an usher. He didn't care that I didn't go there anymore. And Steve did this job every Sunday for 30 years. He never got paid, never got a plaque, never even had a title. He was just a normal guy, who knew this job had to be done and that he was God's man to do it. And Steve never preached a sermon on Sunday or sang in the worship team or even led a prayer, but he was a crucial part of the Sunday morning worship. And Steve died a few years ago, and when he died, he wasn't remembered as the cowboy who rounded up ushers. He was remembered as a pillar of the church, as someone whose commitment and faithfulness was a model for everyone else. So there is tremendous purpose in serving with the church. If you hand out donuts out there on a Sunday morning, you're not just handing out donuts. You're tearing down barriers, helping people feel welcome. If you teach Sunday school, you're not just babysitting. You are helping parents come in here and worship and hear the message without distraction. So there are no menial or unimportant jobs here at the church. When you serve in a local church, you're helping fulfill the purpose of the universal church in showing God's grace to people. And I really can't think of a greater purpose in life. So if you consider yourself a Christian, someone who trusts and follows Christ, then don't be a free agent. Don't be a lone ranger. Jump in with us in showing God's grace to the world. Second, the church answers our desire for identity. Who am I? What defines me? where do I fit in? Who's my tribe? The default is that we find our identity in our circumstances, professions, relationships, interests, and those things become our identity. So I tend to find my identity in being an attorney or in being a husband and a father. And that's not wrong. Those aren't bad things. But the problem is that all of those things can be lost. What if I lost my, lost my law license? I've been an attorney for 12 years. Then who would I be? What if I lose my wife or my kids? Who would I be if the most important people in my life were gone? I am in a very precarious position when everything that defines me, everything I find my identity in can be lost Um, because it means my identity is just a scrapbook of my relationships and interests. But God offers us something infinitely better. The book of Galatians in the New Testament is another letter written to a church by Paul. And this is what Paul wanted that church to know about their identity. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What Paul is saying is that ultimately we shouldn't find our identity in things like nationality, economic status, or even our gender. Not because those things aren't important, but because they pale in comparison to finding our identity as someone who belongs to Christ. Finding my identity as an adopted son of God completely eclipses anything else that might define me. And notice, this identity is not for us as individuals, but as a group, as a church. God invites us to be part of this family that Christ died to rescue and adopt as his children and heirs. And what is beautiful about this is that it can't be taken away. If I belong to Christ, I am a member of God's family now and forever. So if I lose my law license, I still belong to Christ. If my health evaporates or I lose every dollar I have, I'm still a part of God's family. Or God forbid, if I lose my wife or my children, I still have a home with God forever as part of His church. Nothing can change that. Nothing can take it away. Third, the church answers our need for endurance and encouragement. I don't really think of myself as someone who needs much encouragement. I've always seen myself as someone who could sort of chart his own course and then follow through on it without needing much help. But in recent years, as stress and pressures of life, kids and career and finances and health and all that, as that increases, I've been forced to look deeper into my soul and say, you know what, I need help. I'm tired. I'm running out of courage. And I don't think I'm alone in that experience. I think we all have a desperate soul need for encouragement. And the reason I think this is because in the New Testament alone, there are 25 verses about encouragement, how important it is and how we should be doing it constantly. And listen to this verse from the New Testament book of Romans. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Our need for encouragement is so profound and so universal that God wants to make sure we know that he is the God of encouragement, that it's part of his nature to encourage his people. So it's not just for the emotionally fragile. Maybe you're the strongest, most confident, capable person in this room right now. You have this sole need for encouragement, especially when it comes to our faith. Yes, it's important to be encouraged that we're performing well at our jobs or training our children well. Honestly, what I really need is people to encourage me in my faith to not give up, to keep trusting God, to fight for time to read the Bible, to stay focused on living according to what the Bible says is valuable, because the world is constantly trying to erode my trust in God, constantly trying to convince me that I'm wasting my time with this Jesus stuff. But one of the most wonderful things about God is that he is absolutely committed to helping me persevere to holding me firm in my faith. We can so easily slip into seeing God as an angry dad or a disgruntled boss just glaring down at us, expecting us to perform and prove ourselves to him. But that couldn't be further from the truth. God is faithful. And because he's faithful, he is absolutely committed to helping us and encouraging us. And being a part of the church is a key way that God honors this commitment to helping us persevere. This is what the book of Hebrews tells us about encouragement. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This verse is primarily referring to the importance of our weekly gathering uh, as a local church, what we're doing right now. But it's more than that. It's meeting for coffee, going surfing, having play dates and girls' nights, So don't neglect to meet together in this building or outside of it. Otherwise, where will you find the endurance and the encouragement to keep going, to keep trusting God? Yes, reading the Bible is non-negotiable. I need it desperately. That's where I hear from God. That's where I get to know him better. But I could study the Bible all day long and still get discouraged because God designed us to thrive in community. I'm an extreme introvert, so I really hate to admit this, but I need people. I need encouragement from people in this local church and in the universal church. In times of discouragement and doubt, I find strength to keep going uh, through my fellow Christ followers. For example, if I'm at work and I'm struggling with my attitude, I think about other people here at Seabreeze who I know are at their desks trusting God and living out their faith by working diligently. If my kids are out of control and I'm ready to give up on putting forth the effort to train them, I think about the other husbands and fathers that I know here at Seabreeze who are stepping forward as God's men to shepherd their families. And so many of you have popped into my head during times of exhaustion or temptation or bitterness, and knowing that you're out there trusting God, fighting the same battles, gives me the strength to keep fighting. That's the power of the church. So don't go it alone. Find a local church to do life with, to serve with, to help you hold firm and keep fighting. I hope it's Seabreeze, uh, but if not, find somewhere, a church where you can be encouraged and also encourage others. It is the greatest honor of my life to be a part of the church, the body of Christ. God had mercy on me, a broken, (laughs) sinful man, and brought me into his family. Even though it seems like he should have kicked me out hundreds of times since then, He hasn't, and he never will, because he's faithful. So join us. You are officially invited to join God's family. God doesn't want you to just read his epic story. He wants you to be a part of it. So let's pray. God, thank you so much that you have rescued us. Um, We thank you for uh, what what Christ endured, and he sacrificed, and he died so that we could be adopted into your family. Thank you that we can be confident that we have a home with you forever, that you will never give up on us, you will never abandon us, um, that if we if we trust in you, if our faith is in you, um, you are committed to helping us do everything you ask of us, helping us in every situation you put us in. Thank you for this church, um, both the Seabreeze and the Universal Church. And I pray that you would help us to find our identity in you first and foremost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.